High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Welcome to a very special episode of You Must Remember This. With the year of 2014 coming to a close, we are launching a new tradition. Today, we're going to look back at a few memorable moments from the 25 podcast episodes that we released this year. And given that this is a time of the year when many of us will be, as they say, popping bottles, our theme for this reminiscence is tales of celebrity drunkenness. So sit back, pour yourself a beverage, and prepare to be amazed by stories of booziness featuring Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Elizabeth Taylor, and many more stars of Hollywood's first century. Our first tale of celebrity drunkenness takes us back to the mid-1960s. We'll begin with a clip from episode number five, first released in May, in which we explored the last years of Judy Garland's life and career, and particularly the great performer's strong bond with the gay community and the connection between her death and the revolutionary Stonewall protests. Early in this episode, we heard an excerpt from William Goldman's book, The Season. The excerpt was read for us by our frequent guest and collaborator, actor Noah Segan. The following from a screenwriter. I can't explain her appeal, but I saw it work once in this crazy way. I was at a party in Malibu, my first big Hollywood, let's all get slowly smashed on Sunday type party. And there were all these famous faces, and I hid behind a Bloody Mary in the corner. There were a lot of actors there, then the word on them was that they were queer. But this was a boy-girl party. Everyone was paired off, and all these beautiful men and gorgeous broads were talking and drinking together. Anyway, everything's going along, and it's sunny, and I'm getting a little buzzed in my corner position when this star-type female goes by me. I naturally look at her, and she's wearing this fantastically loose-knit sweater. I don't know what the hell it was, but there wasn't a lot of it. And also, there's no bra. 
and these famous breasts are bouncing by. I'd never seen any before. I mean, not famous ones anyway, and they weren't much. And I was thinking deep thoughts about that when I realized Garland was in the room. Well, it's a patio, not a room, and there's a chase in the center. And the guy she's with, one of her husbands, he sort of supports her across the patio, and she plops down on this chase, and she says what she wants to drink, and he goes off to get it. I'm in the corner now, remember, and she's sitting all alone in the center of this patio, and for a minute, there was nothing. And then this crazy thing started to happen. Every homosexual in the place, every guy you'd heard whispered about all these stars, they left the girls they were with and started a mass move towards Garland. She didn't ask for it, she was just sitting there, blinking in the sun while this thing happened. All these beautiful men... Some of them big stars, some of them not so big. They circled her, crowded around her, and pretty soon she's disappeared behind this expensive male fence. It may not sound like all that much, but I'm telling you, she magnetized them. I'll never forget all those famous secret guys moving across this gorgeous patio without a sound and her just sitting there, kind of blinking. And then they were on her, and she was gone. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This account of a boozy day in Judy Garland's life, as related by Goldman, has a kind of dreamlike spirit to it. It omits Judy's destructive substance addictions, particularly to pills, which began during Garland's days as a teenage MGM contract player who was given uppers to fuel long shooting days and downers to ensure her beauty sleep. This cycle ended with her death from an overdose in 1969, at the age of 47. At least Judy left behind a massive body of brilliant work. In episode four, we told the story of an actress who never really got a chance to prove herself as a star before a drunk driving arrest led to her being institutionalized, which wrecked her Hollywood career. Frances Farmer was eventually immortalized as the patron saint of Hollywood madness, first by Kenneth Anger in his book, Hollywood Babylon, and then in a Nirvana song called Frances Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle. Here, actress Nora Zetner plays Frances in an excerpt detailing Farmer's rise to stardom and her fall into infamy. Things started out okay. Farmer arrived in Los Angeles on her 22nd birthday. She was swiftly sham married to another Paramount contract player, the future Leif Erikson, and given the Devigur glamour girl treatment. She starred in two big hits in her first couple of years in town, a Bing Crosby musical, Rhythm on the Range, and Come and Get It, initially directed by Howard Hawks. Farmer eagerly soaked up Hawks's mentorship, but when he was fired from the film, Farmer openly rebelled against his replacement, William Wyler. 
In general, she bristled against the life of a Hollywood contract player, the attendant fakery and fawning that it inspired. Jessica Lange played Farmer in the 1982 biopic Francis, and in this scene, early in the film, Francis is greeted sycophantically. Oh, Miss Farmer, I can't tell you how proud I am to meet you. Excuse me. Yes? Haven't we met before? No, I don't believe so. Weren't you the one that damned me straight to hell? Oh, no, my dear. You must be mistaken. <laughs> Bullshit. I beg your pardon? I'm the same girl that wrote the essay, same girl that went to Russia. You folks aren't pleased to meet me at all. In 1937, after co-starring with Cary Grant in the god-awful period piece The Toast of New York, Farmer was tired of taking weak supporting parts in mediocre at best movies, and in breach of her contract with Paramount, she went back east to act on the stage. She made good on her dream to work with a group theater, starring in Clifford Odets' Golden Boy on Broadway. Then Farmer, still technically married, fell into a passionate affair with the playwright who had his own actress wife overseas. The press, which had branded her as difficult almost from the jump, gleefully gossiped about the dalliance. But Frances didn't give a shit. For the first time in her life, she was creatively fulfilled and in love. At the end of the highly successful New York run of Golden Boy, Farmer planned to travel with the show and her new boyfriend to London. But Odette's decided to stay with his wife, dumping Frances via a two-line telegram and the group theater decided to give Farmer's role to another actress, an actress who would help them foot the bill for the London production. Heartbroken and incensed by what she saw as the hypocrisy of the lefty group theater chasing a payday, Farmer returned to Hollywood in 1940 and found diminishing returns. In July 1942, her husband divorced her, and later that month, Frances Farmer was arrested for driving drunk, without a license, with her brights on in a wartime dim-out zone. She resisted arrest, was dragged to the Santa Monica jail, and was given a suspended sentence of 180 days in jail and a $250 fine. She was ordered to quit drinking. She didn't quit drinking, and she didn't pay the fine or report to her parole officer. And a few months later, the court issued a warrant for her arrest. They got a chance to serve the warrant when Francis got in a fight with a hairdresser on the set of a movie, then returned to the Knickerbocker Hotel, had a few drinks and took a sleeping pill, and passed out in her room. The cops banged on Francis's hotel room door and, when she didn't answer, barged in to find the actress naked hiding behind a shower curtain. Again, they hauled her into jail, kicking and screaming, locked her up for the night without offering her a phone call or a lawyer. The next day, she appeared before the same judge who had sentenced her. The judge asked Frances if she had started a fight. Yes, I was fighting for my country and for myself. The judge asked if she had had anything to drink since the last time she had appeared before the court. I drank everything I could get, including Benzedrine. The judge reminded her that she had been ordered to abstain from alcohol. Listen, I get liquor in my milk, I get liquor in my coffee, and in my orange juice. What do you expect me to do, starve to death? The judge ordered that Frances be remanded to jail to start serving her six-month sentence immediately. This apparently was enough to snap Frances out of fucking around mode and got her asking the questions she probably should have led with about her lack of phone call and her non-existent lawyer. What I want to know is do I have any civil rights? When she didn't get an answer... Francis started throwing punches. 
cops piled on top of her. Eventually, they wrangled Frances Farmer into a straitjacket. According to multiple reports, she was dragged off screaming this. Have you ever had a broken heart? Frances Farmer's legacy is made up of a lot of tragedy and only a little triumph. Her few years as an in-demand Hollywood starlet came just after the waning of another luminous actress whose own story was a bit more balanced between ecstatic highs and devastating lows. Kay Francis was the most glamorous actress on screen in the mid-1930s. Off screen, she was an incorrigible party girl whose habitual drunkenness and many, many, many affairs with both sexes didn't do great things for her emotional or physical health. But part of Kay Francis's appeal on screen was that her characters were determined to live life to the fullest, in spite of the consequences. And as we saw in episode 10, that was also how the actress lived her life. Most of her movies were short, too short for Kay to even really develop a character. She'd make an unforgettable entrance, have some kind of trouble with a man, or more often several men, that gave excuses for several costume changes, several opportunities to waltz into rooms looking amazing, and then either order would be restored, or Kay and or her man would simply die. Once Kay Francis settled into her stardom, she basically played three types of roles. Heiresses and other moneyed women whose lives were devoted to good times, suffering women, and the woman half of gender flip parables, gals who got to, or had to, do things that were conventionally considered the province of men, like run a company with the assistance of a male secretary, as she does in Trouble in Paradise and Man Wanted. The frothier and more double entendre laid in the movie, the more fun Kay Francis is to watch in it. Nobody falls in love at first sight like her, although she was pretty good at quick turns into agony and tragedy, too. But when I think of her, I think of a woman who runs toward pleasure, even though she knows there's a price to pay for it later. The most literal example of this comes in One Way Passage, a brutally underseen Tay Garnett film set on an ocean liner, in which Kay's dying beauty falls in love with William Powell, a convicted murderer who will be transported to San Quentin as soon as the boat docks. Here's Kay getting her onboard diagnosis. No more parties. No more cigarettes. No more dancing, and no more cocktails. You're cutting your months into weeks, your weeks into days. And my days into hours. Is that it? It is. What you really mean, and you're too kind to say, is that if I stay in my stateroom, lie in bed, deny myself everything, even the, the mildest diversion, I may live to arrive at that charming sanitarium. You state it very cruelly. It's not a pretty picture, is it? All right, I'll do what you say. Funny how we cling to life even after it's worthless. In the middle of the scene, she realizes that Powell, with whom she had been flirting on dry land, is on the boat too. She changes her mind. Oh no. No, I was wrong. I know now what I want. I want to crowd all the intense, beautiful happiness possible into what life I've got left. That's all living's for. If it's only for a few hours, I want to have it. And I'm going to have it. All I could get my hands on. Joan, I... Now, Doctor, I am going on deck. But Joan... 
She's one of the great pre-code stars because she can simultaneously come off as happily and unapologetically hedonistic, devoting to living a life free of consequence, and yet she seems smart and sympathetic enough that her bad behavior rarely marks her as fundamentally bad, and her sexual charisma is insane as it was in real life, although pre-code movies couldn't even begin to depict the kind of shenanigans Kay got up to off the clock. By 1934, Kay Francis was a three-time divorcee, now nearly 30, and still getting pass-out drunk and having regrettable one-nighters every night that she wasn't working on a movie. And when she was working on a movie, it was usually work that she had very little creative input into and didn't take much pride in. When she showed up on a set with both wrists bandaged, The press reported she had hurt herself trying to break into her own home so as to not wake up her sleeping maid. Could you blame Kay's co-workers for thinking she might have hurt her wrist doing something else? Something more intentional? Kay chased the blues with another trip to Paris, where she fell into a few more concurrent affairs resulting in another couple of abortions. In February 1935, she came down with the flu, possibly caught from her on-again, off-again lover, Maurice Chevalier, who Kay had been nursing back to health. And yet, she still went forward with plans to throw a massive party. She had rented out a Hollywood restaurant and had it converted into a ship. Kay greeted guests wearing an admiral's uniform. Everyone who was anyone was there. Jimmy Cagney, Joan Blondell, Samuel Goldwyn, and enough of them caught the flu afterwards that the chief of the Los Angeles Health Department wrote Kay a strongly worded letter, essentially telling her to keep her cooties to herself. Kay Francis's career screeched to a halt in 1938, when she was one of several actresses branded with the reputation of being box office poison. That made for a catchy headline, but the truth was that times were changing, and Frances was soon thereafter eclipsed by new leading ladies, like Betty Davis, who will be the subject of our first new episode in 2015, and World War II-era pinups like Jane Russell, who was the subject of our 18th episode, released in October. And then there was Lauren Bacall. Shortly after Bacall's death this past summer, we released two episodes related to the great star of films like To Have and Have Not, Designing Women, and Dogville. The first of these episodes detailed the life and career of Bacall's first husband and frequent co-star, Humphrey Bogart. When Bogart and Bacall first fell in love, Bogart was still married to an actress named Mayo Metho. Mayo has been described by some Bogart biographers as a firecracking seductress and by others as a sad, dumpy drunk who activated Bogart's pity chip. Either way, Mayo set her sights on Bogart as a prize to win, and at first, the two seemed like a perfect match. Like him, she was no-nonsense and could drink all night. And she made him laugh. Sometime over the course of the wedding night, Bogart and the third Mrs. Bogart got into a fight, and the new groom and his pal Mel Baker took off together for Mexico, leaving Mayo behind. The press called them the Battling Bogarts. Their fights were legendary, as was their drinking. Mayo was the kind of lady drunk 
who was quick to accuse any man who called quitting time before she did of being a fairy. With the paint still drying on his new tough guy persona, Bogart tried to live up to his third wife's expectations, which would prove to be a doomed mission no matter how much he drank, but we'll get to that. In any case, there was also the fact that Bogart genuinely liked drinking, to the extent that he would sometimes do it all night long, and then show up at the studio in the morning without having slept, and yet ready to shoot. The things that had originally attracted him to Mayo, her feistiness, her possessiveness, her ability to match him drink for drink, were starting to become a problem. Bogey said in one interview around this time, I like a jealous wife, and I like a good fight. This was presumably before the night when he returned home sober to find Mayo in a drunken rage. She lunged at him with a butcher knife, and the knife ended up in his back. Bogey passed out, and when he woke, he heard a doctor say, It's not so bad. Only the tip went in. When Bogey and Bacall first met, she remembered later, There was no clap of thunder, no lightning bolt. Just a simple, how do you do? When they started shooting the film, she was so nervous, she could hardly stop shaking. And he'd kid around with her to try to get her to relax. It helped a little, as did Bacall's realization that she could steady herself by keeping her chin down near her chest, her eyes focused up at Bogart. This counteracting of vulnerability looked, on camera, like strength. And it would become Bacall's trademark, thanks to Warner Brothers' savvy marketing of the 19-year-old as The Look. The character Bacall was playing was forward, knowing, unafraid to make a major play for a man, and apparently accustomed to landing her prey. She was, as Bacall would put it, a wanton, life-bitten woman of the world. Lauren Bacall, meanwhile, was a self-described flirt, but she was also a virgin, who really had no experience with fully grown men to speak of. Whatever was happening between her and Bogart when the cameras were rolling, she wasn't cognizant that anything was developing between the two of them until one day, about three weeks into the picture. Bogart came to Bacall's dressing room to say goodnight to her at the end of a shooting day, and suddenly took her chin into his hands and kissed her. She wrote her phone number on the back of a book of matches. Late that night, he called. A daily lunch date turned into late-night meetings at her apartment. They'd hide in her car, parked on an anonymous stretch of Selma Avenue in Hollywood. Hedda Hopper came to the set of the movie and, clearly perceiving that something was going on, warned Bacall to watch out for Mayo. But Bogart told Bacall that he had been forced into marrying Mayo. He told her that he only drank because it was the only thing he could do to put up with the marriage. And Bacall believed every word. Bogart did have real feelings for Bacall, but the shoot ended, and he returned to his life with Mayo. He and Bacall did start writing love letters, and once a week when he was on Coast Guard patrol duty on Balboa Island, Bacall would make the two-hour drive to see him. One night he called her, drunk, at 4 a.m. It was pouring rain. He told her he was walking up Highway 101 and to come pick him up. She did. She always came when he called. But then Mayo promised to quit drinking, and Bogart told Bacall that he had to give his marriage another chance, at least for a little while. So they stopped seeing each other, stopped speaking. 
He sent her roses on her 20th birthday, but that was her only indication that he was thinking of her as much as she was thinking of him. To Have and Have Not was released in October 1944. Bacall became an instant sensation. And then she, Hawks, and Bogart immediately started shooting the big sleep. The detente between the lovers continued. And then Bogart started calling again, always in the middle of the night, usually after a drunken domestic fight. And then he moved into the Beverly Hills Hotel. And then he went back home because Mayo was sick and she was in the hospital and and she had promised to stop drinking for good. And then she got out of the hospital and started drinking again. Bogart called Bacall at 5 a.m. one night. He was home, and Mayo was with him. I miss you, baby, he said into the phone. Another voice came on the line. Listen, you Jewish bitch, Mayo said. Who's going to wash his socks? You? Of course, eventually Bogart left his wretched marriage and made it official with Lauren, whose friends called her Betty. Betty and Bogie's relationship was absolutely blissful until 1957, when Bogart died of cancer. When Bogart died of cancer at the age of 57, leaving behind two kids and a 33-year-old widow who had never in her life been with another man. Bacall eventually remarried to another actor, Jason Robarts. And that marriage, as we learned in episode number 14, wasn't such a walk in the park. Jason Robards wasn't exactly the New York theater world equivalent of Humphrey Bogart, although he did look quite a bit like Bogey. But he was a different type of star, a real actor's actor who worked constantly because he needed the money, but he also held on to a certain contempt for commerciality. He and Bacall hit it off at a New Year's Eve party and then started getting dinner and drinks together after their respective rehearsals and shows. Betty thought Jason was dazzling if also a little crazy. He had three kids and was on his second wife, and Betty knew she shouldn't get involved with a married man. Just because it had worked out the first time doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. But she did. They'd meet at the Palace Bar. Jason drank a lot, and Betty rationalized it as what an unhappily married man does to cope, because that's what Bogie had told her he had done, when trapped in a bad marriage to her predecessor. Goodbye Charlie wasn't a hit. It closed after a couple of months. And she threw herself into the relationship with Jason, turning down work to be with him while he stumbled through a tricky divorce. Her kids were ecstatic to have a father figure around. Of course, he was someone else's father. But Betty had plenty of room for the extended, blended family in her new, massive apartment in the Dakota. When Jason's divorce finally went through, he had to give up all of his assets in the settlement. And then they were in Europe, where Jason was shooting Tender as the Night opposite Jennifer Jones, and Betty found out she was pregnant. She was 36, and when she told Jason, first he was happy, and then he freaked. He told her he wasn't sure he even wanted to get married again. And then he changed his mind and decided they should marry as soon as they could, in Vienna, right after he finished his shoot. But when they got to Vienna, the couple had to meet with a lawyer to get their marriage license. And the lawyer wouldn't accept Bacall's word for it that her first husband was dead. And the death certificate couldn't be sent from America in time. So they couldn't get married in Vienna. No big deal. They'd elope in Vegas. But they got to Vegas and 
Again, they were denied a marriage license because not enough time had passed since Jason's Mexican divorce to make a new marriage legal. Betty started to have her suspicions that the universe was trying to tell her something. Finally, on July 4th, they made it legal in Mexico. They celebrated with tacos and tequila. In fact, the tequila flowed straight through dawn, and the pregnant Bacall deemed the evening a disaster. Naively, Betty thought that marriage would change Jason. But he still lived in bars, bringing home strangers in the morning to listen to records, waking up her kids. The night she went into labor, Jason was trashed. He stuck around for the birth of their son, Sam, and then disappeared. He was hours late to pick up mother and child from the hospital, and then he showed up drunk in a chauffeured Rolls Royce. Betty was livid, but she put on a happy face because there were photographers outside. It continued more or less like this for a couple of years. She planned a surprise party for his 40th birthday, and by the time he showed up in the wee hours of the morning, pretty much everyone had given up and gone home. Betty smashed a bottle of vodka into his birthday cake. She was so upset. Giving up and going home wasn't an option for her. She had nowhere else to go. It was her apartment. He showed up fatally late to his own 40th birthday party, but on Bacall's 40th birthday, Jason didn't show up at all. Finally, Katie Hepburn and Spence Tracy gave Betty a talking to. Get out. Forget it. Think of yourself again, Katie said. Spence told her that no one quits drinking because their wife tells them to. They don't quit drinking until they decide to do it for themselves. And of course, some people never quit drinking at all. Montgomery Clift's short but brilliant career hit an early high when he was teamed opposite Elizabeth Taylor in George Stevens's 1951 masterpiece, A Place in the Sun. Taylor and the bisexual, alcoholic Clift were rumored to be lovers, but their relationship, which was the subject of our 20th episode, would become more complicated and probably deeper than the average onset affair, The pair would make three movies together, and it was during the making of the second film that a cataclysmic event bonded Liz and Monty together for life. Liz developed a policy for dealing with Monty's drunken antics and cries for attention. She'd ignore them, so he stubbed out his lit cigarette and his untouched filet mignon at a dinner party. Ignore it. But at the same time, she needed him to indulge her every emotional whim. By 1955, her marriage to Michael Wilding was falling apart. There were rumors, most of them spread by Hedda Hopper, that Wilding was using Liz as a beard to cover up his affairs with actors like Stuart Granger. Both Liz and Michael had taken to confiding their marital angst to Monty. Monty was naturally more sympathetic to the girl he still called Bessie May. Knowing Monty was in terrible debt, Liz convinced him to star with her in Raintree County, an MGM Technicolor extravaganza conceived as a romantic historical epic in the Gone with the Wind mold. It was budgeted at $5 million, which would have made it the most expensive movie shot solely in America to that time. Maybe it was the high projected cost of the picture, or maybe it was something else, but MGM's president, Dory Sherry, had a premonition. And he did something he had never done before. He took out a $500,000 insurance policy on the film. Raintree County shot interiors first in Hollywood and then prepared to move to Kentucky for exterior shooting. 
The cast and crew were to fly out on a Sunday, and on Saturday night, May 12, 1956, Liz threw a dinner party. Monty hadn't wanted to come. Liz had called him at regular intervals all afternoon, begging him to attend. And he kept saying, no, no, no. He was tired. Literally, he wanted to go to sleep early. But he was also exhausted by his confidant relationship with Liz and Michael Wilding. Nevertheless, finally Liz wore Monty down. He had been so determined to not go out that night that he had given his chauffeur the night off. So he drove his own rented car to the Wilding Mansion in Benedict Canyon, several corkscrew turns off of Mulholland. It was a weird scene. The guest of honor, a supposedly hip young priest, didn't even show up. The guests included Monty's best friend Kevin McCarthy, who was then starring in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Rock Hudson and Roddy McDowell, two of Liz's gay best friends, and her husband Wilding, who spent the whole night laying on the couch to soothe his bad back. The rosé was warm and Monty drank at most a glass. He excused himself to leave early and asked McCarthy to drive in front of him down the hill so Monty wouldn't get lost. Twenty minutes after they left, Kevin came back. He pounded on the front door of Liz's house, screaming, Monty's been in an accident. I think he's dead. A few minutes earlier, Kevin had been driving down the canyon ahead of Monty. McCarthy first noticed that the lights from Monty's car were no longer in his rear view, and then he heard a crash. The crash was so loud that, as legend has it, the Taylor Wilding dinner party heard it too. Kevin raced back and found Monty's car crumpled up against a telephone pole. Not seeing the driver at first, Kevin assumed he'd been thrown. And then he saw Monty Clift crumbled under the dashboard of his car, a pool of blood and ripped flesh where his gorgeous face was supposed to be. McCarthy and Wilding tried to keep Liz from running to the scene, but they couldn't stop her. She cradled her bloody friend in her arms. He was alive, and he gestured to his neck. Liz opened up his mouth and realized his front teeth had been knocked out, and they were now stuck in his throat. So Liz stuck her fingers through his mouth, reached all the way down, and pulled out the loose teeth, on which Monty otherwise would have choked to death. Liz went with Monty in the ambulance. When they got to the hospital, the ambulance driver told Liz it would be $10 for the ride. Liz was incensed. How dare they ask her for cash at a time like this? Of course she didn't have any. She searched Monty's pockets, which were also empty. The driver refused to carry Monty into the hospital unless he got his $10. So Liz threw her diamond ring at the driver, a ring that was worth roughly $50,000. But he wouldn't take it. He wanted $10. Luckily, Wilding and Roddy McDowell and a number of other party guests were right behind the ambulance, and they had cash. It wasn't until Monty was safely inside the hospital that Liz realized she was covered in his blood, and she became hysterical. Every bone in Monty's face had been smashed. His nose was broken, his jaw was crushed. Production was shut down while Monty recovered. His jaw was wired shut, and he would illicitly slip martinis out of paper cups through a straw. All of the actors on Raintree County agreed to take a pay cut while the film was delayed, except for Agnes Moorhead. The crew all chipped in to buy the actor flowers. They loved him, because he was like a walking pharmacy. Monty was determined to finish the movie, 
although that determination might have come from pressure from his agents in the studio, who had already spent so much money on Raintree County that it didn't make sense to replace him. And anyway, if they had tried, Liz would have quit. She convinced MGM that if Monty couldn't go back to work, it would kill him. So two months later, Raintree County resumed shooting in Kentucky. Monty had had his teeth replaced, his busted lips sewn up. His jaw was still wired and even making snapping sounds when he moved it, and it hurt to eat. So he drank concoctions of milk and raw eggs. Technically, he was getting better, but he didn't look the same. A nerve had been severed in his face, and the left side of it was frozen. One of his friends said simply, hauntingly, that Monty looked stuffed. He was in constant pain and often gave himself codeine injections in his dressing room, which led to rumors that he was a heroin junkie. He had insomnia and nightmares and would sometimes sleepwalk into the street naked. And he was drinking more than ever. Liz would have dinner parties at her rented house, which on a good night would devolve into cheerful food fights. On other nights, at some point in the evening, Monty would hit his pickled peak and simply melt off his chair and onto the floor. As per her policy, Liz insisted that everyone just ignore it, and the party would go on around him as he slept. For the most part, his drinking was ignored on set, too. Until one day near the end of Raintree, when Monty got the giggles and kept wrecking takes of a scene with Ava Marie Saint. Eventually she got fed up and ran off the set crying, demanding to talk to her agent. The head of MGM happened to be on set that day. He approached Monty and said sternly, Monty, I hear you've been drinking. What a joke. It was way too late for a slap on the wrists. Monty thought Raintree County was a bloated bore, and he wasn't wrong, but he joked that it would be a huge hit because everybody would want to come and gawk at him to try and separate out the beautiful before from the wretched after. The film is not available in a U.S. DVD, and I watched it on a blurry dishwater VHS, which might not offer the best evidence. But it seems like director Edward Dimitrik did a pretty good job of lighting and framing Clift to minimize the horror. Most of the Kentucky exteriors were shot with Monty in profile. Only the right side of his face turned to the camera. But occasionally, you see Monty's new face head on. And the left side just looks vaguely, unplaceably, uncannily off. Fortunately, few tales of Hollywood drunkenness end as sadly as Montgomery Clift's. We'll leave you with a short clip from our second episode, which detailed the making of The Future, a strange and wonderful album made in 1979 by Frank Sinatra, in which he sings about a fantasy trip to outer space and also considers his legacy as an older man and artist who has survived many decades of hard living and massive stardom. Five years before making The Future, and six years after the end of Sinatra's marriage to Mia Farrow, which was documented in our episode number 23, Sinatra went out drinking with a journalist and got philosophical. Pete Hamill, who would later write a small book called Why Sinatra Matters, he went out drinking with Sinatra one night in 1974. Sinatra was between marriages and apparently spending a lot of nights in saloons with his cronies and assorted young women. 
holding court in booths at New York bars patrolled by the junior varsity of the mafia. After all the hangers-on went home that night, Hamill found himself in the back of Sinatra's limo, just the two of them. Sinatra told the chauffeur to just drive around for a while. You think some people are smart and they turn out dumb, he said. You think they're straight, they turn out crooked. You like people and they die on you. I go to too many goddamn funerals these days. And women, he laughed. I don't know what the hell to make of them. Maybe that's what it's all about, Sinatra concluded. Maybe all that happens is you get older and you know less. Thanks for listening to our first annual clip show, Tales of Celebrity Drunkenness. Of course, we couldn't fit all of the alcoholic anecdotes from our 25 episodes thus far into this clip show. For much more, go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We'll be back in the new year with more tales from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night and happy holidays. Now, drinking wine is an old, old thing. You've heard of how the queen eating the king of Egypt used to sip it now and then. But they didn't get drunk and fall on the floor and turn and run smack into a door like some of these modern wine drinking men. They drank their wine from a silver mug and not somebody's old two-bit jug, and they always knew when they had had enough. And the wine they drank was mighty fine, just like the juice right off the vine, not anything like this uh, new green stuff. Buddy, stay off of that wine. Although it makes you feel mighty fine, you can drink.